Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 206, A Gift from Warsaw. Last time, with war in Europe underway, the success or failure of each side would be determined by the ability to communicate with their various branches of war, without the enemy being any the wiser. Conversely, if one side could read the messages of the other, i.e. its Navy, Army, or Air Force, then that too could spell victory for the codebreakers. We have seen that, for the British, there was Dillwyn Dilly Knox, and of course, Alan Turin, among others, that were waging this war, and for the Germans, Wilhelm Traunau was putting his decades of experience to work. Problem was, for the British, their naval code had been broken whereas the Kriegsmarine had not. That had to change if Britain was going to be able to continue to feed its people and stay in the war. Of course, Knox and Tranau did not know of each other specifically, but they assumed a counterpart was working diligently. Thus, the race was on, with the British already in second place, and there could only be one winner. Originally, the Enigma machine had been invented for industrial security, A message was typed out, but each letter was represented by another letter, thus it was scrambled. This gibberish was then sent by Morse code, and at the other end, the receiving Enigma machine would translate the message back to something meaningful. Of course, there was no single overall code, with each letter always represented by the same other letter. That could be broken in time and with hard work. No, inside each Enigma machine, there were three rotors, and each rotor had all 26 letters on it. And three more rotors would be added later, thus creating the possibility of 17,000 different solutions to transcribe a message. The key code for the proper settings changed each day, and unless one had access to the codebook to look up these codes, then the messages remained unintelligible. As no one letter represented itself, the first rotor, all 26 letters, had to be used up before the second rotor took over. Thus, the first rotor contained the first 26 letters of whatever message. So, there were either flaws or regularities that the British at Bletchley Park, but in early 1940 it was simply called Station X, could work with. Also, and this will come into the story soon, the Polish had somehow gotten their hands on an Enigma machine and worked their own way out of translating the coded messages. Before the Polish element of the story is covered, it's worth noting that those mathematicians in Warsaw had worked out a system that used many pieces of paper with holes punched in them. Over time, they figured out the Enigma system in general terms, and when the holes on the various pieces of paper lined up, which represented the scrambled letters that could be seen, versus other punched paper that represented possible correct combinations, and light shone all the way through both groups of paper, that message had been correctly translated. What followed next was their machine, called the bomb, that sped up this searching process. Of course, the real Enigma machine codes were regularly changed. Still, the knowledge of those in Warsaw gave Station X a profound head start. Again, the Poles called their creation the bomb, but it could also be called the machine before Alan Turing's first computer. Meanwhile, the German Navy 
had not been impressed with the Army's version of Enigma, as the latter was focused on having something portable. As the Navy's machines would be on ships, its weight was not an issue. Still, they worried over someone, i.e. the British, breaking their code. So the Navy added a fourth rotor to their version. With that out of the way, the German Navy also made sure their code books were made of special ink and paper that would dissolve quickly when it came into contact with seawater. Of course, this was much more risky on a sub versus a surface vessel, hence the subs would have a second copy of the codes locked up in a radio or control room, and Operation Primrose would benefit from this last part immensely. Back to Dilly Knox and his associates, they had reached a point, given what little they knew of how the Enigma was set up, that they told their superiors, unless we have our own working Enigma machine and the correct code settings, there was little they could do in trying to figure out how to crack the code. But that's exactly what happened. Of all the European countries nervous about the militant rise of Hitler and then of his Nazi Germany, Poland was doing its utmost in trying to crack the Enigma code, even though they did not know enough to call it Enigma. For Warsaw would need all the advance notice it could get against its more militarized neighbor. Back in 1938, the Polish cryptographers had figured out the latest change to the Enigma, There were now five basic rotors the Germans could choose from, no longer the original three. Suddenly, their prototype paper-based computer was made inefficient. It was time to share what little they knew with the British and French. Soon, with Poland making discreet signals that they had something of interest for the other two countries' codebreakers, a British and French representative were sent to Warsaw to meet with their Polish equals. As the meeting got underway, it became clear that the Brit and the Pole would not share what they had until the other went first, which wasn't going to happen. Whereas the French representative could see this and decided to act as a mediator. But little came of it, and the meeting broke up. A year later, now July 1939, and with the war seeming imminent, the Pole suddenly became more willing to share. So, back came Britain and France. This time, for the British, it was Dilly Knox and his commanding officer at Bletchley, Commander Alistair Denniston. Officially, Denniston told German officials at the border that he was only passing through their country. He had always loved it, and he was afraid that war was coming, and so, frankly, he wanted to visit just one more time. He and Knox were allowed in. And having gotten in, they made their way to Warsaw. Once at that capital, they went to a forest just outside the city limits. With war on the horizon, the three sides started sharing information. The British offered up that in the mid-1930s, they had been making process in decoding the machine, but then hit a brick wall. Then Knox went on to describe their approach. The Poles listened and shot back with, well, first, stop using linguists to break the codes. Enigma was way beyond that. What was needed was mathematicians. And the Poles themselves had moved away from the punch cards to instead electromechanical machines that simulated the workings of an Enigma, and they used it to search for the settings of a specific machine that they had in their possession. This worked until the Germans changed the codes. 
Upon hearing this, Knox, very passionate about this, started screaming at the Poles. How could they keep this from London? How were they two years ahead of them? And how did they get an Enigma machine? Mostly, Knox was frustrated with himself and his colleagues, but they had truly gone as far as they could without having their own Enigma machine. Obviously, there was not enough time to explain in detail the Polish experience since 1929 as touching the Enigma machine. The important thing at that moment was that both the British and French were able to leave with Polish replicas of the Enigma. Here's how that came about. On January 1st, 1929, in Warsaw, the people there and around them for hundreds of kilometers were struggling to get through a harsh winter, one that would go down in the record books. At 3 p.m., a young man named Lodomir Danilavicza, a radio pioneer in Poland, heard his phone ring. He was working on a radio transmitter at the moment and was not inclined to be disturbed. Still, the phone kept ringing. Eventually, he picked it up. The man on the other end was an officer of the Army General Staff. He was calling for the counterintelligence director, and he wanted Danilevicza to come in. Now. The young radio man fought the snow and eventually ended up where he was told to go. Danilevicza was met by Lieutenant Maximilian Chesky of the Intelligence Cipher Department. The two had been working on and off together for the last two years. Danilevicza had been called in from time to time to either supply the department with equipment or advise them. This is the bizarre story that Chesky had for the young mathematician. It seems that earlier that day, the Warsaw Customs Office had received a crate shipped from Germany, meant for a German business in the city. And yet, a man from that same company rushed into the Customs Office about the same time the crate arrived, even though no one from the Customs had called him, and told the local officials that the crate had radio equipment inside, but that the package had been sent by mistake, and it should be sent back to Germany immediately. As all this was very strange to the customs officials, they waited for the German to leave, and then they contacted military intelligence. Fortunately for the Poles, it was a Saturday, and as the government offices were not open on the weekend, the German had been told before he left, very sorry, but the package will go out Monday which just happened to give the Poles a chance to look at this package. Denny Levicha gathered his tools on Sunday morning, collected his colleague, engineer Antony Paluth, and headed for the customs office. First, the men simply studied the package from all angles, knowing that when it was repacked, the wrapping had to look exactly the same. Then the wrapping carefully was taken off. Looking around at this supposed radio and transmitting device, the first thing that Paluth said was, this is not a wireless device, whatever it is. Continuing, Paluth, who was also an experienced cryptologist, judged this was a cipher machine of some kind. With the device out of the box, pictures were taken. A diagram was drawn, taking down every minute detail. Next, the rotor mechanism, clearly the heart of the device, was studied. This led them to actually try to use the machine to see what happened. Copious notes were taken during the process. 
With this done, with all that could be done, the machine was repackaged and postal labels were faithfully replaced. All this collected material, their notes, the diagrams, the drawing, everything, their observations, was packaged up and sent to the intelligence cipher department. The only thing that was missing was the item's name, for none of the Poles knew what to call it. Thus the Poles were light years ahead of the British and the French. To wit, Knox could have saved himself the tantrum. The Poles had been given a gift. A fluke, but still, a gift. Fast forward back to July 1939, when the French and the British got their own copy of the Polish version of the Enigma. The war was only a month away. The Enigma machine that Denniston and Knox took back was delivered straight to Bletchley Park. This large mock Tudor country house was selected by the head of secret intelligence, Captain Kiggs Sinclair, or more formally, Admiral Sir Hugh Francis Paget Sinclair, for the simple reason that it was on the rail line, halfway between Oxford and Cambridge. Just after the end of World War I, Sinclair had been made Director of British Naval Intelligence, and he had gone on to help set up the Secret Intelligence Service, SIS, better known as MI6. Before World War II was over, there would be some 12,000 people working at Bletchley, and one of those was Alan Turing, who became a part of the strange world on September 4th. 1939, just days after the start of the war. As the minimum requirement was the ability to think outside the box, these people all came from a varied background, crossword masters, linguists, puzzle creators, and the like, and were all separated into their own huts. Very few talked to other people in other buildings. Why? The powers that be wanted them focused. They were not to be worrying about other people or what other people were doing. They were not even to worry about the wider war. No, they were to accomplish the task at hand, and it was up to others to put the various pieces together once it was worked out by these subgroups. Of course, with this rush and this volume, there were mistakes. For example, one message about a position was mistyped. Thus, the person selected was a specialist in regards to seaweeds, and mosses. However, this person ended up becoming indispensable when it was time to figure out how to dry code books that had been exposed to seawater. When Poland was invaded because of the events already covered, Bletchley Park was not starting at zero. They had already gathered enough information to recognize the codes of origin for each message they got as there were clearly many parts of the German military machine now talking to each other, a delineation was needed. Thus, with colored pencils, any messages about the Norwegian campaign would be marked in yellow. Army messages in general were green. The Luftwaffe got red, and so on. The breakdown of the German process had begun. When Alan Turing came to Bletchley, he had one job, to crack the code. It wasn't long before the prof, as he was starting to be called, was working on his plan and knew how he wanted to go about it. Writing out how, in longhand, he was going to tackle the subject, the gist of his plan was based on the fact that the coded messages were reversible. 
and that being the case, he and the others could reverse the process which the machine went through. But where to start? Turing had worked that out as well, at least in his head and on paper. First, he wanted a regular inflow of what he called cribs, parts of coded messages that were guessable or had already been deciphered. The second was to improve on what the Poles had achieved. Namely, he needed a faster version of the Polish bomb so he could test the various cribs to see if his machine worked, simply because the war demanded a much faster turnaround in terms of translations. Otherwise, it would be useless. Turing painstakingly built his prototype and had likely crib phrases run through it and through it and through it, until the prototype hit the correct setting that turned the code into words. In time, this process would be called Banbarismus, another turning idea. The Banbarismus process used sequential conditional probability to infer information about the more likely setting of an Enigma machine. As in, it was like a scale of how likely some bit of information was a part of a solution or not. Tedious, yes, but necessary. If this was to work, it came down to drive, passion, and most of all, mathematics. Next, proving once again that hard work beats talent, by pouring over as many messages as they could, Turing and others figured out that the naval enigma had a weakness, a flaw. The three-letter indicators of the rotor settings changed halfway through the message but then stayed the same for the next message. With this, and remember, the team at Bletchley was still in the theoretical stage, Turing returned to the Polish system of using long punch cards, at Bletchley now called Banbury sheets, as they were printed in Banbury, about 30 kilometers north of Oxford, or 125 kilometers northwest of London. Messages were printed out, represented here as a punch for each letter. The task was then to line up the cards, and if and when the holes lined up, there were two messages using the same code. Again, nicking away at the problem until the process was better understood. Another thing working in favor of Hut 8 was that the code was reciprocal. For example, if A represented M, then M represented A. And it would be little things like this put together that slowly uncovered the mystery that was Enigma. Because matching up the letters allowed Turing to rule out variations of other positions until the right-hand rotor for the message had been fully identified. As for the cribs, the bits of messages, the testing machine was having issues. First, the team figured out that many of the messages were simply weather reports or Heil Hitler as a greeting. Easy enough. But it was John Harravel that figured out that many signalers would be lazy, most are, and use the same settings as the previous day. This Herviel tip, as it would become called, gave them something specific to look for, and Harravel began to build a system that would detect this repeat. As for the first machine built, called Victory, it was designed by Turing and Gordon Welchman, who worked in Hut 6. This metal beast was 7 feet long and 6 feet high, and it weighed a ton. And yet, 
It would simulate the actions of 30 Enigma machines. But it also leaked oil, jammed regularly, and shocked passersby. And believe it or not, that was the good news. Victory had been built in Letchworth, about 80 kilometers east by southeast of Bletchley, by the British Tabulating Machine Company. But that's where it was, in Letchworth. How to get it to Bletchley Park without anybody noticing. As smart as Turing and his colleagues were, this would take a different kind of intelligence. 